If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 11. I won't ask you to stand for this passage. It's, it's a, a lengthier passage, so you're, you're welcome to remain seated as I read uh, from John 11, verses 17 through 44. John 11, 17 through 44. Pay careful attention. This is God's word, faithful and true. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus, he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up, Quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and saw the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? Help us to receive your word with faith and love to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives and open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. 
The Lord works in mysterious ways, as the hymn says. In his love and wisdom, he sometimes allows things to happen in our lives that he could otherwise prevent with his power, and perhaps that he would also desire in his love to prevent. And it's not always clear to us in the moment why the Lord allows certain things to happen. For what purpose does he do things? Uh, We see now through a glass dimly, and while the Lord promises to work all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, uh, we often admittedly, uh, when we're honest with ourselves, we struggle, I think, to see how he is working that promise out in the midst of heartache, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of affliction and suffering. And yet the Lord again and again calls us to live by faith and not by sight, to trust his ways even when we can't see the end from the beginning, to know that he is able to keep his promises and that he will indeed. And along the way, uh, the Lord gives us kindly glimpses of his faithfulness, of his grace, of his resurrection power to assure us that his promises are true, that his promises are are unfailing. And this story, uh, he, he gives those in our own lives, and he gives them in the Bible, and this story in John 11 is one of those glimpses, one of those places in the scriptures where we see Jesus working in a way that, that doesn't quite fit our categories, or, or perhaps doesn't quite fit our assumptions, our expectations of how and why Jesus ought to do the things that he does. It's an episode in Christ's life as well where we see his heart on display in a uniquely powerful way. Here we see both righteous anger, some have even called it outrage in Christ, as well as deep compassion, both of which are joined to resurrection power. So what I'd like to do this morning is just briefly walk us through the story, walk us through the narrative so that we can kind of feel the tension, maybe uh, put ourselves in the place of Mary and Martha and their friends who had come from Jerusalem to mourn with them. Uh, And as we walk through that story, pay attention for how we see the love of Jesus joined with the anger of Jesus leading to a display of the power, the resurrection power of Jesus. And then finally, we'll think about what this means for us now. Let's look first at the general flow of the story. Uh, and if I can just make a, a side note, sometimes when we use the word story, we're, we're talking about something that's made up, maybe a, a children's story. Uh, it's not true, but it's got a good lesson that we can learn from it. Uh, here, just to be crystal clear, when we talk about this story, uh, this part of the Bible being a story, uh, we're saying that this really happened. <laughs> This is historical. This is true. These events took place, and John was an eyewitness to them and recorded them for us, and they've been preserved for us in God's Word. And so when I say story, I mean true story. I don't mean a made-up story with a good lesson. I mean Jesus really did and said the things that we've just read, as fantastic as they may seem to our reading or perhaps to the world around us. And John tells this story masterfully. If you think about it, John could have just said, 
Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who died, and Jesus raised him from the dead, full stop. He could have just given us the bare facts, but he doesn't do that. He walks us through the narrative as it unfolds so that, in a sense, we can feel what they felt. We we can see Jesus working out his purposes the way that they did. We all know the end of the story because we've read it so many times, and so maybe it's helpful to just kind of put ourselves there and feel it as it unfolds. Jesus has been in Judea. He has had a run-in with the Jewish religious leaders there. Uh, We read in John 10, after Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, uh, that he has claimed equality with God. He says, I am the Father, are one. The Jews understood what this meant. They, They thought it was blasphemy for Jesus to claim equality with God. They were wrong because Jesus is, uh, has equality with God. And in Jesus' case, uh, because it was true, but they didn't believe, they tried to stone him to death. They, they picked up stones, and he engages in a little dialogue with them, and then he eludes their grasp, as he often does. He leaves Judea. He goes back up to the east side of the Jordan River, kind of southeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you can think about... Um, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and the Dead Sea, kind of like an imbalanced vertical Q-tip. You got the Sea of Galilee up here, and then the Dead Sea, which is a little, some of you are scrunching, scrunching your faces off. What do you mean? You got a big part in the line, and then another big part at the bottom. It's like a Q-tip. Jesus is up here, uh, kind of on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and Lazarus and his sisters are down here on the west side of the, sea, of the Jordan River in Bethany near Jerusalem. And the Dead Sea is down at the bottom. Did you see that, that map? So, yeah. He's gone away. He's gone to the place where John the Baptist began his ministry uh, at the Jordan River, baptizing people for repentance. While he's there, uh, he receives word from Martha and Mary, these friends of his in the town of Bethany, the village of Bethany, that their brother Lazarus is sick. Jesus has some close relationship with this family, The message that's given to Jesus in verse 3 of John 11 is simply, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And that was enough to tell Jesus that this was about Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. They were close. He loved, it says in verse 5, he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He has a close relationship with them. And this emphasis on Jesus's love shows up throughout the story. Yet what does Jesus do? Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6, therefore, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This raises a question. You're scratching your head. Okay, Jesus, Jesus loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. He hears that Lazarus is sick. And therefore, because of his love for them, he waits. He doesn't jump up and go. He doesn't rent a camel and ride, uh, you know, double-paced to Bethany. I don't know if you could rent camels back then, but he doesn't. My point is, he doesn't do anything except wait two days longer in the place where he was in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan River. This this raises a tension in the story. Because Jesus waits, and then two days later, he, he knows uh, in a way that's not clear how he knows, but he knows somehow that Lazarus has died. 
And so at that point, Lazarus has died. He tells his disciples, uh, Lazarus is asleep. So euphemism for death. Uh, Let's go. Let's go see them. And his disciples are kind of confused. Well, if he's sleeping, won't he wake up? You know, what's, why are we going? Uh, you're in danger in Judea because of the what, events that had just happened. Why should we go back? And Jesus says to them very clearly, okay, the disciples are a little slow to understand. He's not sleeping. He's dead. And, and it's good for you that we waited for me to go to do what I'm going to do with Lazarus. He says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So they go. It's about a four-day uh, or a couple days, or it's about a four-day journey uh, to Bethany near Jerusalem from the place where Jesus was. When he, when he gets there, Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. So he left as soon as he knew that Lazarus was dead. He arrives doesn't go all the way into the village. Martha, one of the sisters, hears that Jesus is there. And she goes out to meet him and says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we often take that as a a slight rebuke to Jesus. Like, where were you? Why why didn't you come? You you failed somehow. But I, I don't think that's the best way to take it. Martha is confessing her faith, that that Jesus, had he been there, would have been able to keep Lazarus from dying. But he wasn't there, and yet she still professes faith in Jesus and his ability, his power. But you see there this tension. Jesus loved them. He was able to do something, but he wasn't there, and he didn't do anything at this point. Jesus engages with this, in this dialogue with Martha, saying, your brother, your brother will rise again. Martha takes this to be a pronouncement about some future event related to the final resurrection. So she says, I know. I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It's kind of abstract. It's out there. It's not concrete and right in front of her. It's something distant that Lazarus will participate in one day in the future. Jesus responds to this continued profession of faith by directing her faith not to some future event, but to himself as the one who is the resurrection, the one who himself gives life to those who are dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, giving a little bit of a foretaste of what he's about to do. He sends for Mary. Mary comes, says the exact same thing that Martha did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. All of the Jews who have come from Jerusalem to mourn with them, they're gathered around Mary. They're gathered around Martha, gathered around Jesus. Mary and Martha are weeping. The Jews around them are all weeping. They're consoling them, uh, weeping with them in their grief. And it says in verse 33, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Here we get to this tension and and the way the tension resolves. Jesus loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He knows that Lazarus is sick, and he deliberately chooses not to go do something that he is able to do, namely heal 
Lazarus. Keep Lazarus from dying. Seems like a good thing. Jesus is able to do it. Why did he not do it? He didn't do it, we're about to find out, because there was a greater work that needed to be done in order to display the glory and the grace and the power of Christ for us. And we capture that, we see that in this description of Jesus' emotional response to the situation. It says two times in verse 33 and then again in verse 38 that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. And then it adds that he was troubled. He was troubled. If you read the Cottage Bible Study book this past week uh, in chapter 11, this was kind of the focus of the chapter, Jesus's anger at this situation. And that's captured in the word deeply moved in spirit. The word is used elsewhere to describe um, the snorting of a horse, kind of in, in rage. Uh, if, you can, if you can picture that, a, a horse that's kind of all uh, riled up and, and angry and dangerous, and you don't want to get near the horse when he's in that situation, and, and the inner rage of the horse is coming out through snorting. It's the same word here used to describe Jesus's emotional response to the situation that he's facing. He's deeply moved in spirit, which is not the best translation. He is moved from within with anger. The uh, message translation, which shouldn't necessarily be your, your primary Bible to read, but is very helpful and kind of illustrates the vivid language of the Bible. Uh, in the message, Eugene Peterson says that anger, he translates this as, Anger welled up from deep within Jesus. I think that captures well what's going on here. Why is Jesus welling up with anger? Righteous anger, good anger. Some have said that maybe he's, he's angry because he felt pressure from Mary and Martha to perform a miracle. That doesn't seem to fit the story. They, they don't seem to be pressuring him. He's already decided what he's going to do. There's no pressure. He's acting freely. Some have said that he is angry at the display of unbelief uh, among those gathered to mourn. But that doesn't make any sense because he weeps with them. He, he loved Lazarus. Uh, he joins with them in sympathy with their grief. Probably the, the most accurate answer, uh, just from the story itself, is that Jesus is moved with anger when he sees sin and its effect in the world. He sees death not the way it ought to be. God created Adam and Eve in the beginning. He created all things good. And there was no sin and there was no death. And, and life was abundant and full and, and people, Adam and Eve, had life in fellowship with God with, with nothing hindering them from that relationship. And the entrance of sin creates this great division and separation and disrupts and distorts God's good design and brings into the world that God created death and corruption and sin and all bad things with it. And Jesus sees in this episode all of that kind of coming to a head in the death of Lazarus as he sees 
Mary weeping and sees the Jews gathered there with her weeping as well. And as he joins with them and weeps alongside them, anger towards sin, toward death, towards him who holds the power of death, wells up within Jesus and he is troubled. He is angry. He has righteous indignation towards sin and death. Here you see not just the love of Jesus, but the love of Jesus joined with the anger, the righteous anger of Jesus towards sin and all of its effects. You have to ask the question, I think, what if this story had ended at verse 35? It's an interesting thought. Verse 35, you have Jesus seeing them weep. He's troubled. He's deeply moved in spirit. Uh, He goes to the tomb, and he weeps. What if it just stopped there? Uh, What would we have? Jesus is outraged by sin and its effects, perhaps troubled by unbelief. He joins in the sorrow of those around him with his own tears. But then that's it. Uh, what, if, what if the story comes to a full stop right there? What are, what are we left with if that's the case? Well, we're not left with much. You're left with someone who has sympathy but not sovereign power. Someone who has tears but not transforming power. You have a Savior who weeps but cannot act, which is no Savior at all. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus' love for the world, for people, for Lazarus, Mary, and Martha in particular, joined with his anger towards sin because he knows far better than anyone else that this is not the way things ought to be, that sin is distortion and disrupts God's good creation and our relationship to God. Jesus joins love and anger with resurrection power. In his conversation with Martha, he points to himself as the resurrection and life. And here in the raising of Lazarus, he points ahead to his own resurrection from the dead and the power of his resurrection in our own lives. They bring him to the tomb. Martha is distressed because Lazarus has been dead for four days and it will smell if you move the stone away. Uh, but Jesus urges her, and she, they remove the stone, and he calls forth Lazarus. Some have said that if Jesus would have just said, come forth, that his power was so great that everybody in the tombs would have come out. And so he had to be specific. Just Lazarus this time. Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus walks out. He's bound hand and foot with these funeral, these grave clothes. Jesus says to take them off. Why does Jesus wait? Why does Jesus display his love and power in a way that causes this tension? People wondering, what's he doing? He healed a blind man. Why couldn't he have come and and healed Lazarus? Jesus is pointing us beyond the simple problem of sickness and disease and reminding us that our problem runs far deeper. Uh, That our problem is sin, which brings death. Sin, which separates us from God. And what's needed to overcome that problem is not simply just a healing, but a resurrection. All of 
the Christian message, all of the Christian gospel, all of Christian salvation is a movement from death to life. A friend of mine recently said there's only one word for that movement from death to life in the Bible. It's resurrection. Jesus' greatest miracle was not simply healing people who were sick, opening the eyes of the blind, helping people or enabling people to walk who couldn't walk and so forth. All of those miracles are pointing to something far greater still, that there's a deeper need of sin and separation from God that only a resurrection of a righteous man can satisfy and solve. So Jesus doesn't just show up to heal Lazarus. He lets Lazarus die so that everybody knows that Lazarus is dead, dead, not just halfway dead. And once they know that Lazarus is dead, dead, and they fear opening the tomb will bring out a stench, he says, come forth, and shows that his power goes far beyond what they were limiting him to. Why didn't he show up and heal? Now he can't do anything. But Jesus' power goes beyond simply the things in this life. He's able to reach into death, conquer it, and bring us into life. Even here, removing tears and restoring joy. Jesus acts. He acts out of love towards his people and compassion towards us, and out of a deep and righteous anger towards sin and all of its effects. And he acts with resurrection power. And we see this in five ways as we close. One, he raises Lazarus, just very simply. He does the thing that was far better than the other thing they expected him to do. He answers their questions about why he delayed and why he didn't come when he was able to do something by displaying a greater power of bringing Lazarus into life even from death and removing the tears of sorrow even from Mary and Martha and the rest of their friends. Jesus removes tears and restores joy in his own resurrection. His raising of Lazarus is a foretaste of his own rising from the dead on the third day after his death on the cross. There you see as well the anger of God and the love of God joined together in resurrection power. And the Bible says that God is slow to anger. He's, he's not like us. We are often quick to anger, and, and Scripture urges us to be like the Father, to be slow to anger. God is slow to anger. But there's one place in the Scriptures where he is not slow to anger. It's at the cross. There at the cross, the crucifixion of his own son, the sacrificial giving of the Lamb of God, to die at the hands of wicked men, the full force of God's wrath, God's anger, God's justice for sin, unleashed on his beloved son in our place. He, he, Jesus is restrained. He might be angry at the tomb of Lazarus, but he is restrained in his anger towards sin. <clears throat> At the cross, that restraint from the Father is removed as the Son bears in his own flesh the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. He is slow to anger, but when he executes it, he does so in fullness. And the good news of the cross is that he did it on Jesus in our place, that we might be set free from that 
and know the love of God as the justice of God is executed upon the Son of God. Love and mercy to sinners, just wrath towards sin. Jesus' own resurrection removes tears and restores joy. Number three, when Jesus raises us in the new birth, we read that, uh, or you, you can read that in Ephesians 2. Paul says that we have been raised with Christ. We have been made alive together with Christ. When, when you come to Jesus, when you're converted, that's a resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. You've moved from death to life. You've been brought into fellowship with the living God. Sin has been forgiven and righteousness has been placed on your account, the righteousness of Christ. And you've experienced, if you are in Christ, you have experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in your own life. He raises us in our regeneration. Fourth, we get to experience as we follow Jesus many resurrections, M-I-N-I, many resurrections. And you might experience many resurrections as well, but we get to experience in the Christian life many resurrections. I was talking with an old friend yesterday on the phone, and, and we hadn't talked in a while, and he was catching me up on uh, family life and was recounting some particularly difficult situations they had faced with one of their children uh, in the last several years. And it was a situation that he said was so bad that the previous worst thing in their life that they had experienced was really only preparation for the heartache that they had with their child. All had ended up well. Uh, their child had received good and wise care, and, and life was, was good. Life was fruitful, following Jesus and, and all those sorts of things. And he said that when he looks back on his life and he thinks about all of the different scenarios where he's experienced many resurrections, this was one of them, where they saw in their own child's life and in their own life a movement from death to life. And don't, don't we experience that in our own lives? We experience hardship, we experience suffering, we experience heartache, and it feels like dying, sometimes worse than others. I think even in those small moments of affliction, it just is a reminder of death's power, the power of death over us. It feels like dying, and yet isn't that where Jesus meets us? Doesn't he meet us in those moments of despair? Doesn't he meet us in those moments of affliction with love towards us and resurrection power, enabling us to experience Many resurrections all throughout life as we move from death to life, as we see the dying of Jesus in our lives and the rising of Jesus in our lives, and we see his faithfulness again and again, we get to experience many resurrections in our life following Jesus as he removes tears and restores joy. And then finally, in the final resurrection of which Jesus' resurrection is just the first installment. In the final resurrection in the end, we will see once again the full anger and outrage of God towards sin as he finally judges righteously and perfectly all those who have rejected his offer of grace and love and mercy, who have spurned his love, 
There will be perfect justice in the end. Again, unbridled anger, righteous judgment toward those who are still in their sin and outside of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation describes the justice of God in vivid ways. You should read that to see that his justice is real, and we should all heed the warning that it's real and fly to Jesus because not only will God execute perfect justice against sin and the final judgment, he will also execute perfect, full, unbridled compassion towards all of his people. The tears that he wipes away now return in this life. They, they just keep coming. We keep dying. We keep experiencing the effects of sin in this life, and it hurts down to the core. One day, in the final resurrection... Christ returns and brings his bride with him, he himself will wipe away every tear. He himself will put away sin in all of its effects. There will no longer be in the new Jerusalem any sin, any sorrow, any sickness, any pain, any death, any grief. We will behold the face of God in all of his glory, without the hindrance of sin, keeping us from seeing him, keeping us from loving him perfectly. He himself will wipe away all tears and bring to us perfect compassion in the end. All of sin will be removed and we will enjoy the fullness of the love of God forever. In the resurrection of Lazarus, you have a small taste of that future glory and a bit of a helpful reminder God's ways are not our ways, and he may not act according to how we expect him to act or how we assume he should act in this life, but he will always act towards his people with grace and compassion, mercy and wisdom. And you can trust that even if you don't understand, and you, you might be able to look backwards and see, but even if you can't, even if you don't understand, God is faithful to his promises, not just guaranteed by the resurrection of Lazarus, but rather by the resurrection of Jesus himself. He has conquered sin and death for you. And one day will bring all things to completion and make all things new. It's a wonderful scene in the Lord of the Rings trilogy as Sam Gamgee and Frodo Baggins are on their way to take the, the one ring to its destruction and free Middle-earth from the evil uh, impact of Sauron, this, this evil uh, lord, this evil uh, being. As they're on their way and they're becoming more and more weary, uh, Sam Gamgee falls asleep along the way and uh, wakes up in the midst of this journey, this perilous journey to this mountain of fire where they're going to drop the ring and have it destroyed uh, where it was made. And he begins to talk to Frodo, and he asks him this question, are all the sad things coming untrue? And I think that's a question that we can all be asking in, in this life, uh, because there are many sad things. Are they coming untrue? It, will there be a day when all the sad things will be made untrue and undone? And the answer, foreshadowed in Lazarus, secured in the resurrection of Jesus, 
and promised in the resurrection to come in the end is an absolute certain yes. All the sad things will come untrue, and we can trust him now until that day comes. Would you pray with me?